Hi everyone, my name is Kat Savage and I'm a clinical hypnotherapist and well-being expert working in the creative arts sector. In my line of work, I get to meet some amazing, colourful people, from actors to artists, people who live their lives by their own rules, fueled by passion and determination to bring their unique talents into the world. I wanted to discover what it took for people to leave the usual nine to five and hop on a dream, to capture their bravest moments and share these meaningful conversations with you, so that together we can explore the ideas, emotions and moments that could potentially change our lives too. The Brave Moment podcast starts now, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, probably the bravest moment not only for my guests, but for the whole world. So let's keep talking, have some fun and enjoy the show. This week on the show, we welcome award-winning poet and MC Jason Vegas Butler. Jason has been slamming the world with his wordsmithing skills for the past two decades, performing everywhere from the stages at Glastonbury Festival to the BBC Urban Music Awards. He's won slam contests, headline spoken word events, written for film, recently became a finalist in the 2020 National Outspoken Poetry Competition, and is currently in the process of releasing his first poetry collection, Miscellany of One, through Slate Publications, and has just released a new album of original material with his band Antimatador. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to this tour de force of literary genius, Mr. Jason Vegas Butler. So I'll start with this one. It's called Oliver, um, which makes perfect sense once you hear it. Nationwide, the voices implore. Please, sir. Can I have some more? I've heard those words before. I said them on stage at a young age. Learned by rote off the page. Performed in primary and secondary by some odd twist of fate. A scene of make-believe. Dow Dickens in misery as prelude to a song. Food, glorious food. This all sing along. It's just a play, a dolorous diversion, a desperate discourse on a distant age. The starving poor put in their place, a spoon of gruel slopped on their plates, as Bumble pats his fatted waist. It was the 80s, just after they took away the free milk, crushed the unions, sold off the utilities, privatised for profit and sold altruism to the lowest bidder. But even then, we still had free dinners. But now, I'm not sure how, but most of us missed it. They brought the workhouse back to life, an inch by inch stealthy heist. Lower the wage and raise the price. Squeeze the monetary vice. No more mask of Mr Nice. Bumbles back with chubby chums. Across the track from grubby slums, they ladle out the gravy boat. The working poor barely afloat. Millstones tether, debts still rise as eternites avert their eyes, divvy up the coffers, award themselves a raise, revel in the great return to Tory glory days of red-faced indignation at the greedy, starving poor who dare to show the temerity of, please, sir, can I have some more? That was wonderful. Welcome to the show, Jason Vegas Butler. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
So I have to tell you, listeners, this man is a creative in every sense of the word. He's a digital creative making games and speaking internationally on the power of games in learning. Um, you reached the finals of the National 2020 Outspoken Poetry Prize. You're an MC in Gert Biggin, playing all over the Southwest to make it into the finals of the televised BBC Urban Music Awards in London. You've played Glastonbury a few times in various capacities. I mean, you're a creative through and through, aren't you? <laughs> it's, it's in my, my blood, in my DNA, I think that's... That's my my biggest driving force is being creative in whatever I'm doing. I love that. I mean, how did you discover your art for the spoken word? Um, well, I guess when I was small, I used to love writing. I wrote poems like from when I was ten upwards. I wrote a poem from once to my mum on her um, Mother's Day card, which she then sent into the local paper, and that was the maiden advertiser back when I was ten. And they made a little, as they do, a little photograph of a little boy holding a pen and a pad. <laughs> And then put the poem underneath it. And reading back, it was bloody awful. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it showed that I didn't care. I just always like to always like to put words together. And then it was through when I started listening to the hip hop back in the eighties when that when that um, came across the pond. And I loved to listen to rap and listen to how they sort of structured a, a verse and created a weaved a story and made these internal rhymes and used couplets and stuff. I got really inspired to start writing, and that really sort of influenced my writing style when I was a kid. That's really cool. I mean, talking of, you know, hip-hop and stuff, who were your inspirations back then? Um, the first thing that inspired me was I listened to a, a tape called The Electro 5, which was a um, Street Sounds collection, which is like a little compilation. They they're like they went up to Elect Street Sounds 15 or something, but Street Sounds F Electro 5 had um, this one track on it called Fast Life. They did this, this, it was like a story rap about a kid who um, went off the tracks and became like a drug dealer. And then also on that was loads of other little songs, and, and I... Learned every single one of them by by rote. I just couldn't. I just had it on my BMX, floating across me on the crossbar, riding around, just blaring out, just learning all these raps. And um, and I didn't. I, after that, I sort of loved listening to hip hop, but I, at the same time, I was wasn't those sort of people who you, you said, "Oh, re repeat the, the lyrics from this song." I couldn't do that. I just it just inspired me to like have this internal dialogue all the time. So I started thinking about things in, in a certain rhythm and a certain rhyme. So then I would like go home and write my little raps and little scrapbooks. <laughs> I remember when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, I wrote, I wrote a, um, a track about drink driving. Um, I wasn't a drinker, but, um, <laughs> but I just, so, and then I, I started off with all these sound effects, like clinking milk bottles together and like, oh, son, yeah, driving home, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine, and all this sort of stuff. And then for scratch noises, I got two um, cassettes and scratched the, 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 the corrugated edges together because I didn't have decks or anything back then. Yeah, so it just, it's just whatever you have to hand, that's what you used to create with. So, and that's, that's always, amazing. that's been my ethos. That's really, really cool. I mean, your parents, I can't even imagine how they would describe you as a child. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just imagining you now sat there with your with your decks and your cassettes and, and all of your books and bits of, you know, paper and pens all around you in a massive whirlwind chaos. Um, probably much like my own childhood, actually. <laughs> so... Obviously, you were creative outside of of your school, but what were you like as a as a student? Uh, I was generally quite often in trouble. I'll be honest. Because <laughs> um, so you know, as most creative people are, your your mind wanders. You don't pay attention as much, you know, or you're in your own world of doing stuff. Um, I was I was very. I mean, if it was something we were doing like a creative thing, like if it was like spoken word or drama, or I was really up for it. Um, maths and and like uh, geography, not so much. And um, back then, it was it was um, it was quite well 
the humanities were still quite well and thriving. I mean, we had technical drawings, so we had like the big old flip top desks where you could do like proper stuff with, with um, with um, huge A A four sorry A two sheets of paper and stuff. And we had like uh, D T where you could create things with wood and metal and all that sort of stuff. And then you know words we we'd learn very small amounts of poetry, but you know do, do the classic bit of Shakespeare here and there. Or so, and then we had a good drama um, set up, good music set up. But now when you look at schools now, my my girls going to school, and all that stuff is very much been starved and it's shrunken back so there is very little opportunity for people to, to try out all different um stratas of you know creative arts that's such a shame i mean what advice would you give to to young students out there who do have this thirst for creative knowledge um unfortunately it's, it's when i was at university they, they had this i'm not gonna swear but it's um fofo was their man- mantra which was f off and find out so basically it's <laughs> It's, it's um, be your, in charge of your own um, your own creativity, basically. If, if there's something you're interested in now, because there's the proliferation of stuff on the internet, um, there's so many resources, just Google whatever you're interested in and then just immerse yourself in it. I mean, other than just like watching a TikTok dance or, you know, something else. I mean, admittedly, that is great fun, but at the same time, try and be a unique and individual and an original person. So, you know, if you can, if you're into spoken word, watch button poetry or go uh, go go online and watch an on, on open mic event if you're into music saturate yourself in music you know and that will buy an instrument even if you don't know how to play it <laughs> and then eventually you know just by twanging around you might come up with something nobody's ever heard of before i love it so can you remember the first time that you ever stepped foot on stage how did you feel <laughs> Um, well, I can remember, I mean, obviously things like school plays and stuff, but that was, that's a different thing. Cause you know, you, it's almost like it's, um, by rote, you have to, you have to. It's um, like a practice ground, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. But I remember the thing that sort of, um, sticks out in my mind when, when I was, I don't know, about sort of 13, 14, I went on holiday with a friend of mine. It's one of those classics where family goes on holiday and they're allowed to take a friend each. So me and my friend Shams are on holiday and he, and me and him went to this disco and there was like a talent talent night at the disco. Um, so it's like one of those caravan club places. And I just got up on stage with no idea what I was going to do, what I was going to perform. I had nothing prepared. I just stepped up on stage. So I saw the microphone, saw the spotlight and just got up there. And he said he, he was looking around for me. He said he went off and bought two cans of Coke and he's trying to find out where I was. Turned around <laughs> and I was suddenly up on stage trying to do impressions and like tell jokes and uh, I don't know what I was up to. But um, yeah, I was up there for about a five minute set, got off, didn't come anywhere. But I really enjoyed that whole thrill of throwing myself in, in the mix. How did, how did it feel? Like, can you remember how your body felt when you're on stage for the first time? It's the the weirdest thing. It's that it's that trepidation of stepping onto the stage when you're in the wings, when you're out of the out of the spotlight. That's when all the nerves and all the excitement and everything is. As soon as I was on stage, I felt almost like it was weird. But I felt at home. I felt that this is this is brilliant. Everyone's looking at me. I can I can I've got I've captured this audience for as long as I can hold on to their attention. And I generally was like, you say you try and do stuff that's gonna um that's gonna work, that's gonna you know keep people engaged. Um, as I said, I didn't win or anything, but um, but at the same time, that that sense of like um, this is really good fun, and that when you came off the exhilaration after after performing, that's always stayed with me. So um, ever since then, I, I always in everything I've ever done, I always like to have a bit of a, of this set, which is completely unprepared, completely unrehearsed. I don't know what I'm going to do next, or even I invite like randomness into the set to allow that that to, to to happen because then that that's where that real exhilaration comes from walking that knife edge of not knowing if it's going to work or not you're making me feel tense just <laughs> saying that out loud <laughs> oh my goodness I, I'm just remember trying to remember the first time that I saw you perform and um 
it was in your band freshly squeezed mm. at the time uh imagine like uh a multi-genre but sort of funky edged bands uh with a great front man and horn sections and all the rest of it and then vegas comes on the stage and basically wraps the socks off the audience and i i was stood there with my mouth open it was unbelievable that energy that you bring to the stage do, do you think that it comes from somewhere else like when you're in the persona of vegas where does that come from um it's weird i do sometimes feel like i'm an instrument to the universe it is you know especially when you're on stage and I close my eyes and I'm freestyling because that's one of my favourite things is to just like um, go off the top of my head, totally freestyle rather than do anything rehearsed, just, you know, in the moment. So whatever you see in the audience, whatever you see that's going on, that you know, you can, you can even ask people to hold things up and incorporate that into a, a freestyle rap. Um, but I just tend to like go into this little, it's a weird like um, a cosmic state where you see words like on a travelator coming towards you. And so you just grab them when you need them. And then, and then it just, yeah, you just... I, I find that sometimes I can get into this this zone where I can just rap seemingly endlessly, and it's, I don't know where it's all coming from. It's obviously there's a huge repository of words somewhere in my brain where it's just just being spat out towards me, and then I've just got this this knack of being able to knit them together in, in the on the on the fly sort of thing. What do you think are sort of like the biggest mistakes that people sort of coming into spoken word? What what do you think those big mistakes are that they they make initially? Uh, I guess being not yourself, um, being um, inauthentic. I think if you, if you see somebody who you really like, and then you emulate them, that's great. But you want have to emulate them in your in with your own voice, with your own stories, your own experience. If you just try and basically just carbon copy someone, I think then that you're you're setting yourself up for a failure because there's no there's no honesty in what you're doing. Like a lot of people I see write stuff maybe for a slam. Mm. And they'll write a three-minute poem that they and and it becomes very contrived almost. Mm. I think you shouldn't limit yourself. So if you want to write a nine-minute opus, write a nine-minute opus. If you want to read a, a three-line poem, write a three-line poem. Just you know whatever feels right for you, do that. I think you can you can look at other people for inspiration, but you have to be yourself. That's that's the the biggest pitfall for me. I think is not being yourself. That inauthenticity is is like a real no-no. Mm. Do you find then? That's kind of why you separate your personas a little bit when you're emceeing to when you're when you're being poetic. When I'm when I'm on stage as a rapper, there's definitely a different vibe. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm much more shouty and leery, and you know, I'm prepared to take the mick out of the crowd and be much more confrontational, perhaps. But in a you know a, a sort of jovial way, I'm not I'm not like a offensive. But um, but when I'm when I'm a rapper, I'd like to be, when I'm a poet. Sorry, I'm much more honest and open and mm. try and make, make a, a genuine emotional connection with, with what I'm saying to, to the to the audience. And also there's there's a real difference because obviously when you're in a band, mm. 98% of the people listen to the band and just like nodding their heads, having a drink, talking amongst themselves. Some of them listen to what's going on vocally, but not all of them. Whereas when it's spoken word, everything's stripped away and it's just you and your voice. Does that make you feel a bit more nervous, a bit more vulnerable? I think it does. But at the same mm. time, it, it makes you feel like you've actually got you've captured some people's attention there, there's nowhere else to, i mean if you start like chatting amongst yourselves in a, in a, in a poetry event then people just turn around and hust and snip and like, they're snippy about it because you know you're not you're not focused on, on what's going on in the room and i think that a lot of people find that very rude if people start talking amongst themselves mm. if you're at a, a poetry event so there's definitely this, this case of it's a very warm and inviting audience everyone's generally they are they're open to see what you've got to say so that enables you to take risks enables you to be a bit more 
open and honest than you perhaps would be. I've said things on stage that I probably wouldn't say in, in like polite conversation. I've said stuff that um you know I've I've revealed secrets, I've revealed like like traumas and 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 stuff that I don't normally talk about. But because it, you're you're in this sort of this womb of acceptance, you, you sort of get away with saying all sorts of things. Talking of of being sort of received for what you're giving in your vulnerability. I mean, when does your inspiration hit? Because I know that for me personally, it it's a weird thing. I, I imagine the poems sort of a, a little bit like you said, being a vessel for the universe. I imagine words and things sort of circling around my head. And when they decide, not when I decide, mm. when they decide, they shoot down into my brain. And if I don't capture them there and then, they're gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find the same thing? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, um, it's normally like... Just, just the second your eyes are just about to get asleep, suddenly you get a whole stanza pops into your brain, or you know you, you could be um, mining underground, or you know your hands are covered in tapas. You know you just like <laughs> I can't write this down. I haven't got a pen. Oh god! And then you got then you just got the rest of the day. Um, people are talking to you. And you're just in the back of your mind is circling that one line around again. I've got to remember this. I've got to remember this. <laughs> Which it is. Is uh, I've, I've wrote. I've written a poem about that actually. About that whole thing about a, a poem could strike. Um, do you have it here um possibly yeah let's have a little look yay um, it's, it's called hold that thought and actually it's the first poem at the start of my book which is coming out because it, it, it sums up the whole thing we're talking about when 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 a poem hits you you need to be ready for it it's called hold that thought if you're buried by an avalanche or on a derailed train, trapped in a mine or eating tapas in spain jostled by drunks in a pub watching sport a poem could strike so hold that thought. If you're tied wrists and ankles to a four-poster bed, mountain climbing the Eiger, a sumo sat on your head, being cross-examined by a lawyer in court, a poem could strike. So hold that thought. If you're captured by ISIS or having sex with your boss, in a dinghy that's sinking or trying out dental floss, wrestling a vino in a vat filled with port, a poem could strike. So hold that thought. If you're sat at a writing desk, ornately carved, a pen and some foolscap neatly folded in half, all the time in the world in an idyllic resort, nothing, absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That was brilliant. I need to give you a clap. It's your lone clap for the day. (laughs) Wow. And uh, yeah, that's exactly what it's. I was trying so hard not to laugh through that because (laughs) obviously recording, but yeah, absolutely brilliant. Um, What do you think drives you to create? What's that motivation Um, to be creative? I think it's otherwise, what is life about? I mean, I hate to be too dour, but um, if you if you start, you know, as a baby and you get to, you know, old age, hopefully, and shuffle off this mortal coil and, and in between you haven't created anything you haven't created anything original or or not and i try to you know express yourself then it's almost like a life wasted for me i i feel that you know every day if i even if i'm just jotting down a couple of lines of nonsense or if i'm writing like an epic poem or if i'm like there's so much stuff i've done that's just been lost to the ethers i mean especially when i do like freestyle stuff when i'm, when I'm seeing and things if i'm in a jam with a load of musicians and you just in that moment create something which is amazing and epic and then it's just gone it doesn't matter it's, it's not worth this because it's just gone it, it's that's something really important very human very like primal about that you've created something and you've given it out to the universe and i i feel that that's 
for me, if I didn't do that, I'd, I'd go insane. I'd, I definitely need to have this. It doesn't even just be to an audience, but it needs to just be me coming up with something and being creative. Uh, that's, I don't know why, it's just this burning desire in there, you know. And if, if I've, I've tried to do the, the nine to five boring job thing and I literally nearly went insane. I mean, my worst job ever was I worked on a on a production line in a, in a um, tin factory. And all I had to do was turn a, a tin over from upside down to the right way up so the next guy could put the lid on I, <laughs> for eight hours a day. Did that for four weeks. And then I, I actually did go slightly insane because there, there was no room for you to be creative or... And then when you got home, you just really knackered. So it, and it just, yeah, it just... Oh, that was the worst thing in the world. So... That, that's why I, I tried to, if everyone, when I moved to a new town, I was trying to find a band to play with or I try and find like a scene to get involved with because that's, you know, you need to have this, this, this like burning kernel inside you that, you know, that wants to go out there and do things. How do you inspire that in your kids? <laughs> um, I think by not imposing limits, by not, um, by not, um, if, if somebody's in, interested in something, just, you know, throw a bit more kindling onto that fire. If, um, if when my, my, my little girl Goldie, she used to be really, really interested in dancing. So we made sure that she joined a dance troupe and, you know, did whatever she wanted to do. She wants to dance around the house. She wants to dress up as, you know, a rainbow fairy. Fair enough. I'll join in. <laughs> um, if, you know, she, when she wants, she was interested in music. So we made sure we got, we got her a keyboard. We got you know, a mic so she could, most of the time she's just in the mirror, just miming stuff, but she's still, um, exp- expressing herself and getting a, a, a persona so I think that's you know important is just just not to undervalue but if somebody wants to be creative it's not something that, as you said before it, which is like seemed as like the government say that you know it, it's non-viable it's not not important it's really important it's, it's like the heart of what being human is all about so I think if you can encourage that if you can give them um, the tools to try and be creative. If, I mean, I know, you know financially it might be a problem to, to, to buy a, a, a you know, software or whatever. Um, at the same time, there are ways of, you know, a pen and paper isn't expensive. Um, a, you know, a dress-up box of stuff of, of old of old guff that you've, you've got, you've accumulated. Everyone's got stuff that they've accumulated over the years. <laughs> you've got to, you know, create, you know, everything. Just just be in there. Just just allow that to happen. Just just help that sort of cultivate that, that that idea of you no know, of being of imagination and creativity and that's the only way you can do it is just allow it to thrive i mean you mentioned the government um in that comment and it's i mean it's such a sensitive subject isn't it at the moment the pandemic um and how it's affecting people's lives and i know that you were due to have a book published weren't you yeah tell me about that um, oh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a gutter, but at the same time, it's um, it's still it's not completely mothballed. It's mm. I, I spoke to my publisher the other day, and, and um, she's really keen that it's going to come out uh, soon. Mm. But um, it's a book called Miscellany of One. Um, uh, it's basically a compilation of poems I've written over the last five years. And because I'm quite a I'm not quite a scattergun sort of brain, I, I, I write a poem about my dog one day, and the next day it'll be about world politics, next day it'll be about <laughs> um, how, you know something like about nature or you know they're all very or all they're very anecdotal you know they don't really sort of fit into one one genre so um we created this idea of a book which is like a miscellany of all these different books and um emma the publisher has got this this great um connection with letterpress mm. so every single poem is going to be letterpressed so, <gasps> so so it'll look beautiful yeah, as it'll well look beautiful and hopefully be really nice and tactile and each page will look unique and because of that i mean obviously you have to be in a certain space to be able to lay, lay out the letters and 
get access to the printing machines. And that was originally in Plymouth. That got closed down because of the pandemic. So therefore, we got everything got pushed back. But um, she's now um, got hold of other printing presses. She set up her own print studio. So we're going to hopefully have it out by the end of this end of this year. The first run's been done for it. So hopefully. We'll probably launch it in the spring, I should think. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that coming out. I'm really, really excited about it. I can't wait to get a, a signed copy myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I have to sort of divulge a little bit more into into this pandemic situation. I mean, how are you coping? Because I know that obviously you are a performer in every sense of the words, and I relate to that. What have you done to survive creatively in this time? So I um, set it upon myself, right, okay, I'm going to write a poem a day during lockdown. So I did a poem a day during, and I ended up writing 70 poems back to back, day after day. <laughs> wow! And, and performed each one onto camera, put it uh, uh, on my Facebook page and then sort of here and there spread it around elsewhere. But that's generally on, on Facebook. And just, yeah, just, and then on Fridays I would do a freestyle Friday. So I'd um, I just open up the, um, put it live, let people just um, send me um, comments, like write a poem about this. And so I just weave in what was in the comments. And as I say, just that whole idea of throwing yourself off a cliff edge and seeing where you land. Mm. So that's what I did. And that was, that was, that kept me going for those, for that first bit of, um, of, uh, of lockdown. Other than that, I started investigating carpentry. I thought <laughs> that's something I, got, I could do. So I had, lo- I had a massive list of jobs I've been putting off for years and years and years. So I decided like, Oh, I'll, I'll fix the shed roof. And then, fixing the shed roof turned into I'm going to build a bar and then I'm going to build a garage and then so as well so by day I was writing poems and then as the sun was out I was doing loads of stuff with saws and drills in the garden so I just sort of and then did loads and loads of walking that's one thing I hadn't done so I've got a dog so me and her was going sort of maraud and then you come back sort of filled with loads of ideas to write more stuff so it's I just kept myself um, going rather than sort of hunker down I, I tried to do my as much as I could to get out and about. Do you think that kind of saved your mental health? I mean, do you lean on your creativity anyway to help with that? Yeah, I think there is definitely some catharsis that comes from being creative. I mean, I tend to see that if people sort of hold on to anger, if they hold on to grief, if they hold on to negative thoughts, then that tends to fester and become a really sort of embodiment within themselves. Whereas if you are able to get that out of you, you're able to like exercise those things and have the catharsis of it for me getting it out and getting it down on a page even if nobody else is ever going to read it it feels like i've, I've exercised myself of that mm. and then i can move on so um sometimes you know that that ability to just to explore you know um negativity in a way that you can get it out of yourself can become a positive experience I want to take you back to Glastonbury. Oh, yeah. <laughs> please do, please do. <laughs> if only we could be there. So, Jason, you, you've performed at Glastonbury. I mean, mm. can you remember what that was like for the first time? Yeah, that was awesome. Um, it was, it was, I loved it to have been a bigger stage, but, you know, that's always the way. Um, we were on the bandstand stage the first time we played. And there was two. There was a sea of people just who, who either just seen the cure or didn't want to see any more of the cure. Um, <laughs> and it came this this huge stream of humanity came past us just as we were starting up. So it was the perfect time to play. And then we just a load of people stopped, and the, the, the load of people got more and more people. And yes, yeah, so we did our, did our first set as Anti Matador um, to to Glastonbury. That was that was really good. But also because it's Glastonbury, you're there for three or four days. So I went to the, um, the open mic tent as well, and I did some open mic, and I entered the Glastonbury slams. So I did so I got to do some some spoken word while I was there as well. So that was real nice to like to perform in both sort of stratas of my my sort of 
online present well, most on stage presences like mc vegas but also i'd stood up and did a poem about my dog as jason butler and, <laughs> and and then one about my wife which is one of my favorites and um yeah it was, it was like a real nice mixture of both so i got to see i got to see some great music acts but i also got to you know perform in, in all my my various guises which is really good how does it feel different performing with a band to f- performing alone well performing alone you know there's no safety that you can't sort of just have a little like little five minutes off and just stare into the distance and you know, think about things while while the guitarist takes an epic solo or the drummer's holding it down. Um, there, but then again, there's there's a certain amount of energy that comes from playing with a band. There is there is a huge like uplift, you know that that sense of energy. And all, and all you can do then is as a, as a vocalist is just try and ride above that. So obviously your your sense of energy inside is even more. Um, but when you when you're it's just you and you and the mic and a crowd of people and nothing else. It's, it's a different it's a different energy, but you have to, you have all that same focused power, but just just you and a mic. So um, you can spread out the words a bit more. You can have a bit more um, soulfulness. You can have a bit more thought and maybe a bit more deliberation over what you say. And you can afford to be melancholy. You can afford to. Whereas when it's with a band, generally people are there to have a good time. I mean, mm. unless you're you no know, Radiohead or something, you want to play like a <laughs> particularly. Um, <laughs> Downbeat track, deep and but, meaningful. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but we in every band I've ever been in, we're not hugely deep and meaningful. We're, um, <laughs> we're always trying to get people to like throw themselves around, or at least you know have a have a good time. So, talk to me a little bit about Anti Matador because, um, you, I mean, do you still go out as Freshly Squeezed as well, or or is it just pure Anti Matador now? Uh, Freshly Squeezed was the the first band um, that we were all playing in, mm-hmm. and then. Um, and then Freshly Squeezed, because we're doing covers, you're playing stuff, you know, like which you haven't written. We, we always put our own twist on it. I mean, obviously, a lot of the tracks we do, like, you know, if you're going to do a, a R&B number, it generally doesn't have a rap section in it. So we always weaved in, like, an instrumental rap section or we, um, we, we'll take a, an old tune and, and up, upgrade it. But um, it still felt like there was no... The originality came from how we played it, the arrangements, as opposed to the content. And so Anti-Matador was us trying to write our own stuff. Mm. And it just didn't fit in like that. The, the, the sort of funk, soul, hip-hop vibe that we had in Freshly Squeezed didn't necessarily fit what the, what the music we were creating as a, as a group because mm. there's like eight of us, well, there was at the time eight of us in the band. Everyone's got their own musical influences. And so we, the, what came out was this real sort of what I'd like to call genre fluid um, um, sort of vibe where it just, we called it future sound. I don't know what that, I'll, I'll leave that to the other people to think of. But um, essentially it, it doesn't really fit in, in that genre. So we created, we created Anti-Matador to cover those bases. And then there was like a, a weird schism where Freshly and Anti-Matador definitely became two separate separate things. And then Anti-Matador... Um, we got to a point where we're ready to release an album, ready to like put out singles and that sort of stuff. And then um, we had a, a, a change of, of singer and then we didn't have a singer for a bit. And then we had a, like another shuffle of, of, and it just never seemed to be the right time. Never ever clicked into place. And now like four years after we've recorded the album, um, we're at, uh, middle farm studios we're finally putting the album out because we've had to like do overdubs and re- redo bits and get new so it's, it's finally we're at the point where, like we've got to put this out otherwise it's, it's up, what's the point doing it <laughs> so that yeah so the antimatter album coming out on the november the 10th um 2020 and it's a, a, an opus it, it's, it's a really weird thing to describe it's like the first track is like a, a straight up hip-hop track second one has like got rock jazz um drum and bass there's there's like techno in ones there's there's um there's some 
amazing like ethereal vocals we've got jake jake Caladine doing a beautiful song called the owl which is um and it's this floaty like high pitch vocal over the it's, it's just it's a real it's a bit like my poetry it's like every single track is it, it could be from a different band mm. and that's what we like about it it's, it's just this this whole, whole idea of a collective sound that creates this one whole as opposed to like that's them the same yeah. thing track you can't track. be niched yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> i've always loved that about your band how, how did you come up with the name anti-matador <laughs> um, do you remember where you were when that was the decision <laughs> yeah we'd had a um we'd had ages of trying to fight out what name we should call ourselves and um i mean we got to this point where we thought well a bit like a poetry slam everyone wrote down what their favorite names were we put them in two big piles of paper we ripped them all up put them in the go so it was like you know Goldfinch versus Monkey Biscuit and Matador was one of the last ones but then um, we thought Matador's got like a real negative connotation mm. so, but it's just, it just a really powerful strong word and then Dan Dan Hillman our saxophonist um, said yeah but the problem is if we meet a band called Anti-Matador then um, we, we might cause a rift in the space-time continuum and the whole world might like, just fold <laughs> in on itself um, and then because he was playing, playing off the idea of, of matter and antimatter and then that just like Ping. So we uh, we typed antimatador into uh, into Google, and there's no other antimatador apart from there's one. I think there's a, some sort of anti-tank device called an antimatador. <laughs> just, that, that works just as well. So yeah. So we thought, sod it. We're going to clump, we're going to clump onto our antimatador. So that's where it came from. And lo and behold, it was born. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you see the world differently as a consequence of your performing and writing? Um, everything's a excuse for writing a poem. I think. Um, <laughs> It doesn't matter how bad it is, it's, I could write a poem about that, or how great it is, I could write a poem about that. Um, I don't necessarily... I used to write lyrics more when I was when I was younger, like mm. sort of up to, I don't know, about five, ten years ago. I always thought of things as lyrics. Now I always think of things as poems, and I really enjoy now all the training I've had for years and years and years as an MC has now fed into what I write as a poet. So I've got that same sort of drive for rhythm and stuff and, and for rhyme, but it's gives me an opportunity to write about whatever I want to write about. That's so, awesome. Yeah. I love that. If you were to go back in time and meet 10-year-old Jason, do you think he'd be proud of who you are now? I think he'd be really glad that I shut up because <laughs> <laughs> I was literally the, the second shortest in our year and we did have a, a guy who was at dwarfism in our year, so I was pretty short. <laughs> and um, and I was, I was, yeah, I was really keen to you know make a noise and and be out there and and um and i always i always pictured myself as, as um maybe doing some music or whatever but now if i told them you know when you get to my age you'll be fine you you've you've performed here you've been on tv you've been on radio you know you've you've, you've done all the things you wanted to do don't worry it's all it's all good i was i was always worried at, at 10 that um well, actually at 10 i wasn't worried it was when i get to became a teenager and mm. everyone else was like six foot taller than me and really hairy and I was like golem amongst people when they, <laughs> you got like these, these Sasquatch boys at, uh, at, when you're having getting changed after after PE and then there's, there's this little skinny golem in the corner he's like three foot one it's just, yeah it wasn't brilliant but but when I was ten I, I literally thought I was going to become Luke Skywalker and I could I could re- rebuild the word in Lego I just you know, I was <laughs> I wasn't bothered about much, but um, so I mean, even if he saw me, I reckon uh, even if he saw me, that'd be me, wouldn't it? So, if there was some weird way that we could talk to each other, I think it, I'd be quite chuffed that you know, oh, he's he's got a bit of a beard and he, he he's tall and, he's, and he seems quite all right. He's not. He's not <laughs> I think I'd be happy with that. And the fact that I can tell him I'm still into Star Wars, even though I'm ne- nearly fifty, I think he'd be well chuffed. I, I have to describe the the t-shirt that 
that Jason's wearing right now. It, it, it is a take on Mr. Miyagi, isn't it? Yeah. It's a take on Mr. Miyagi, but imagine Mr. Miyagi is Yoda um, and he's he's got chopsticks in his hands and he's basically, I mean, he's taking down the, what, what are they called? The TIE Fighters. TIE Fighters. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Because obviously in, in, in um, Karate Kid, which is another great film I loved when I was a kid, <laughs> he, he says, if you can, a man who can capture a fly with a chopstick can accomplish anything. So Yoda can <laughs> catch a TIE Fighter with a chopstick, so therefore he can also accomplish anything. <laughs> love it oh we're coming to the end of the interview and I'm really really sad because I've I've loved listening to you <laughs> as always um so I have to ask you what do you consider to be your bravest moment or moments I've always considered um just be putting yourself out there um I, my my favorite thing in the world is to challenge myself by not having a plan um as you probably can tell from this interview that I generally like to throw myself out there and um, see what happens rather than... I've never been, as I, I might have said it in, in the intro, that we, you know, you can, there's a whole thing about fail to prepare and prepare to fail. So if you imagine um, you've, you've been given a chance to stand up on stage in front of potentially a 1,000 people, generally you like to have an idea of what's going to happen. I like to not have an idea of what's going to happen. I like to ask the audience, okay, what do you want this next song to be about or this next poem to be about? And then between us, we, we discover what happens next. And um, that could go terribly wrong or terribly right. 98% of the time it goes terribly right because everyone's with you because they, you know, they're part of that experience. But sometimes it does go terribly wrong. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's also a learning experience. That's also, you, can, you can turn that into a bit of fun. Um, but yeah, generally I like to stand up in front of a, a crowd of people and just go for it and see what happens. And, and without the safety net, I think once you haven't got a safety net, then that makes you, if that holiday, that, that adrenaline from performing um, is massively um, sort of spiked by that, that, the idea that this is, you know, this is knife edge stuff, I've got to get this right. But at the same time, it's fun as well. You see, you've got to keep that balance. I love that. What parting advice would you give to those people that are listening to this now going, wow, you know what? I've got the confidence now to maybe try spoken word. What advice would you give them in terms of, you know, how can they educate themselves and how can they get themselves out there? Um, well, weirdly, when I first started, I used to do a night called Rhyme Warp in the Barbican Theatre. And my main ethos that was to get people who've never performed before to perform. And you basically you've got to understand that when you, when you perform a spoken word open mic night, for example... People aren't there to judge you unless it's a slam. But I mean, but people aren't there to necessarily give any sort of negative vibes. It's the, you'll find it's the most warm and encouraging um, environment you could ever stand up. You could stand up and shakily with a piece of paper, go through your first poem, and I guarantee you'll get a massive round of applause because <laughs> people are, they understand what it is to take that first step in the threshold of becoming a poet and becoming a spoken word performer. So if you, if that's what you want to do, then all you need to do is do it. Just um, be confident in your own voice. Be confident in your own poems, because the thing is, you'll you'll write a poem, and it might your first poem is never going to be your best poem unless you're really lucky. Um, but it, you need to have it heard, have it read, discuss it with people, and also listen to other people as well. If you want to write a poem, my my first poetry experience was to sit in a in a crowd, watch some amazing poets, and think, bloody hell, I could do that. And then somebody then saying, you got any poems? Do you want to go and do one? And then taking that step to just put your foot on the stage and say it, that first opening line, and you'll be at home. Honestly, you'll feel like you're at home. Oh, that's such great advice. <laughs> I love it. Um, finally, which poets 
do you think people, if, if they're starting out with poetry and they're a bit like, oh, I don't know what this poetry malarkey is about, which poets would you recommend they started with? Um, I was most blown away when I saw Kate Tempest. I saw her at um, Glastonbury, um, and I've seen her quite a few times online. But the, the sheer veracity of her poems are amazing. Also, um, um, Holly McNish, um, I saw, I've performed with her a few times. Um, but I, I also... I mean, people. You'll find that a lot of um, a lot of poets these days are much more accessible. I think when I was at school, poetry was very much his William Wordsworth, his John Donne. You know, the, the, which I mean, not that they're great poets, but at the same time, there seems like a real sort of linguistic barrier. Mm. Whereas if you if you can find people who have the same sort of vernacular as you the same they speak in the same way i mean obviously um, in the current scene there's there's a massive strata of people who are influenced by hip-hop through to people who are just you know writing their own in their own voice i mean like george the poet for example um uh, danny pandolfini aka crafty um you've got um vanessa kasule she's amazing um i've seen her a few times she's an absolute tour de force on, on stage but the person who first got me to like really, really, like, want to get up on stage. There's a guy called Johnny Fluffy Punk. <laughs> uh, and, and he's he's hilarious. And he did things like he'd start reading a poem, then halfway through stop and go off on a little tangent, talk about some stuff, then come back and finish off his poem again. And he was really just broke down what I expected the poet to be. There was no po-facedness. Uh, Chris Redman, Tung Fu, I mean, that was amazing. And then, again, they, they play with that whole idea of um, of improvisation, which is, for me, is, is really uh, integral to performing. But I think um, the best thing to do is, is if not if you're not going to if you're not a big reader because some people aren't big readers, then just go to open mic nights. Um, I, I've gone to open mic nights and come away with like a couple of lines after hearing somebody do a whole whole poet that might be like sixty year old bloke from from Exeter. You know, who shuffles out to every open mic night, but actually he, he has a few absolute gems in there. You know, those are people like, you know, Robert Garnham, um, James Turner, um, Tim King. Well, the, the, these people who run these great open mic nights go along. And then you, that's how you'll get inspired to, to write, I think. Talking of inspiration, um, being that it's in our final throes of the interview, <laughs> will you please give our listeners another poem? This one is um, about a Sunday roast dinner that I had with my family many, many years ago when I was 15. And um, it turned into an absolute debauched nonsenseness. Um, it's called Classic Family Roast. It was a classic family roast. Nana and Grandad Butler, the hosts, their four sons with wives and children in tow, a few in-laws, not sure where we're all going to go, tables dragged together in an uneven topology, seats squeezed side by side, scant regard for elbow room, Mismatched plates, random knives and forks, you've emptied out the cut we draw. Meats, potatoes, pots of veg, enough to fill up hollow legs. Passed around by the handles or slopped out in ladles. Pints of beer, glasses of wine like dominoes in a precarious line. And around mouthfuls of food, the grown-ups start debating. Gesticulating laden forks, gruff pontificating. And when all the dishes are doled out and nobody's waiting, the whole table settles down for en masse masticating. All truffing in a cacophony of clinking plates and cutlery, slurps and burps, a messy feast with no finesse or subtlety. Once eating sounds simmer down to a palatable roar, my granddad seizes the moment as he has some fun in store. He clears his throat pointedly, raises his fork, and points at me and asks, Jason, you know this. 
Can you tell me what those flavoured condoms are for? <laughs> the table drops to a hush, a momentary peace. The only noise, a dull cascade from a stalled fork full of peas. I'm a virgin all 15, but still know a thing or two. My jaw frozen closed, mouth full with half-chewed food. I make a point as if I'm just trying to find the right words, a tiny poised pause to cover the fact this is entirely absurd. I can feel my cheeks reddening. My palms are getting clammy. Every eye is trained on me from every member of the family. Then Nana Owen pipes up. She's all pearl necklace and perm, the in-law matriarch, straight-laced and firm. Usually disapproving, prim and proper, well-to-do, not backward in coming forward when she had a point to prove. She interjects. Is it for that, um, deep throat? (laughs) Everyone's reaction was exactly the same. Like Formula One victors gushing champagne in unison, a chorus line of grotesque spit takes. Regurgitated morsels spray on one another's plates. Gravy spittle dripping off each other's faces. Peas appear in nostrils and other unexpected places. Greens between the cleavage of Nana's ample breast. Red wine constellation fleck the shirt of Grandad's chest. Cabbage on the mirror. Bits of sausage in the hearth. I'm sure some food flew out the window, littering the garden path. A second of silence. And then we laugh, as if it's going out of fashion. Unfettered, no hesitation. Auntie Sue needs resuscitation. Choking cousin slaps on backs, a giggling, messy aftermath. Now all those grandparents are gone. The uncles are estranged. I can't even call back all the cousins' names. All those bonds are gone now. And it's a shame, but to the memory, I'll still smile and raise a toast. Regardless, it was a classic family roast. (laughs) Sensational. (laughs) I think we can all relate to that. (laughs) So, Jason, just to finish off now, if people are interested in your work or they're interested in the band, where can they find you online? Um, Well, if you type in Antimatador online... We're the only ones, so we're currently making a big splash on social media, so there's lots of stuff going out there at the moment just before the album. Freshly Squeezed, uh, freshlysqueezed.com. Jason Butler, um, Poet, which is just, you know, as you can find on, on, on Facebook. And then I've got a website, um, jason.butler.io, and I'm on Instagram, at oldmanvegas. If you type in oldmanvegas, all one word, you'll find me, because I'm pretty much the only old man Vegas around. And fingers crossed, hold hold up for um, miscellany of one. I'll make a lot of noise when it's nearly off the presses, and I'll let you know. Thank you so, so much for being here today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> It has been an absolute pleasure to spend time with Jason today. His passion for his art shines through in every thought-out sentence, and yet in contrast, he is happy to set foot onto a stage and see what comes to him in the moment. That to me is the epitome of a brave existence, purposefully putting yourself in the way of fear or failure and knowing with complete faith that you will find something creative, that the moment is there for the taking and it's your choice how you enter into it and what the outcome will be. How many of us self-sabotage these moments of potential, be it through procrastination, which is essentially the fear of beginning, or through perfectionism and not wanting to finish a piece so you don't have to appear foolish or wrong if it isn't liked? 
Better not to begin or finish at all than to be out there to be judged, right? But like Jason says, it's better to try and fail than fail to try. I like that he doesn't limit himself to a certain style or structure. He is curious about all he sees, like a photographer, capturing moments around a dinner table, and yet, in contrast, will happily write a political piece expressing his thoughts on the hottest topics, which goes to prove that poetry is limitless, that every thought can lead to a piece of tangible art if you give it the space to grow. So maybe we need to take our inspirations, however small, and run with them. Write them down, put them up, speak them out loud, and be brave enough to invite opinions on our work, be it through friends or open mic nights or online events, so that we can grow in our creation process, and also as a person. Like everything in life, the more we practice, the more we develop our passions into defined and tangible skills. And just as William Faulkner once said, get it down, take chances. It may be bad, but it's the only way you can do anything really good. Join us again next week when we speak to Cornish foraging expert Vix Hill Ryder from the famous Family Foraging Kitchen. We talk about sustainable eating, foraging simple plants from the hedgerow and seashore, and some great tips on how to whip up a free dinner from your garden. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have a spare moment now, please like, subscribe, and tell me your thoughts in a review, which will really help other people like yourself to find the show. Of course, you can also share with your friends and follow us at the Brave Moment Podcast 2020 on Instagram or the Brave Moment Podcast on Facebook. If you're interested in getting in touch, pop on over to the therapy page Coping to Mastery on Facebook or via the website copingtomastery.org. It's been so wonderful to have you all here with me again. Please get in touch with the show with your own stories and don't forget, your Brave Moment starts now.